Well, good morning. My name is Austin Brash, and I am the RUF campus minister at Arkansas State University. Been here a few times before, but it is a pleasure to be back, and I'm so glad to be able to worship with y'all. Uh, if you ever make your way up to Jonesboro to worship with us, uh, our church's name is Christ Redeemer. But let me warn you, the state troopers in Arkansas do not take a Sabbath. Uh, so I saw about three or four of them today, and it was actually the only traffic ticket or speeding ticket I've ever received was on my way back to Jonesboro last time I preached here. So just a fair warning for y'all. Uh, they asked me if I would do a quick update on our ministry at Arkansas State, and it's kind of complicated to do that because it's been a complicating year. Uh, it's been COVID, and that really did affect what we were able to do on the university. And not only that, it affected what our students were able to do, even if they were able to show up on campus. A lot of our students are from the Delta. Uh, most of them are middle class, lower middle class. And so a lot of them had some financial restrictions that didn't allow them to come back to school or they had to work at home a little bit while they went to school online. So it was a tough year. It was a tough year to get new students and to recruit them to be in our ministry. And if you know anything about our ministry, it is a, or it, it's a plant for RUF. So it didn't exist before two years ago. So people ask me what it was like being a plant in the midst of COVID. And I appreciated the prayer requests earlier today about loneliness. It was lonely. Uh, it was lonely for our students. It was lonely for me. But at the same time, God still met us. And we, we like to say our ministry right now is a small garden, but it has deep roots. Uh, he matured our group. He met our group uh, with his grace. And our students, though they are few, they grew a lot. Uh, I was even thinking about this past week where I sent a, uh, a form to our students that are on our ministry team. We have about 14 students on our ministry team, kind of the leadership. And I asked them a bunch of questions, spiritual questions, to see kind of where they were and how I could help lead them and guide them and equip them. And one of the questions was, who is Jesus? Uh, put it in your own words, who is Jesus? And one of our students, Colton, said, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the bringer of salvation. And he's the friend of sinners. And I love that. Um, it captured both the majesty and yet the intimacy of who Christ is. And that's really what we're hoping to do with all of our students. If you were to ask me what our students' biggest issue at Arkansas State is, like what is hindering them from being obedient and accepting the gospel, I would have an answer that would say, or one word answer, I would say worship. But at the same time, if you ask me, what's the solution to your students knowing the gospel? I would say worship. I think Augustine was right when he had, or when he tried to express what sin really was. What Augustine said, and he took it from Paul out of Romans 1 really, is that sin is not just doing the wrong thing. Sin is much deeper than that. It's loving the wrong thing. Another way to say that is it's worshiping the wrong thing. Romans 1.25, we worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And so what Jesus has come to do is he's come to take disordered worshipers and make them true worshipers. And so as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about my students and the ways in which their worship is disordered, and yet as Christ invites us into, to be true worshipers in his name, I wanted us to read and consider today a psalm of worship. Psalm 34. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there, as I will read for us all 22 verses of Psalm 34. 
Psalm 34, it's a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Verse 1 begins, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you of the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and turn your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ear towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of them, those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at this psalm of worship, this prototypical psalm of worship, to discuss the subject of worship. And we're going to do that by looking at three different questions. We're going to look at what is worship, why should we worship God, and how do we worship? So let's look at that first question that we're going to ask. What is worship? When most Christians hear the word worship, usually what comes to mind is kind of what we just did. Corporate worship formal worship, or even just singing worship songs. And yet, worship is not less than that, but it's also more. Worship is not just about what we do or an action that we do. It's also about how we engage with our relationship with either God or this world. So I think this psalm summarizes worship pretty well in two ways. It tells us two things about worship that it involves. First thing that worship involves is proclamation. If you look at verse one through three with me, I'll read it again. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. If you look in these three verses, David talks about worship being proclamation in many different ways. He blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. He boasts of the Lord. He magnifies the Lord, and he exalts his name. And he doesn't just do it internally. He does it externally. His proclamation is verbal. He says, 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Worship involves proclamation. And Jesus teaches us this, right? Do you remember how important our words, our proclamation were to Jesus? He says in Luke 6, 45, he says, Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth will speak. The reason that Jesus wanted us to pay attention to what we said is not so that we say the wrong things. He was actually saying, I want you to pay attention to what you say because what you proclaim, the way you talk and what you talk about says a lot about what you worship. If you want to figure out what you're worshiping, listen to yourself. What dominates your conversation? What can you not help but talk about? Is it sports teams? That's my problem. I'm an Alabama graduate, so that's the worship that infects us all as football fans. Is it your children? Is it your grades? Is it your reputation, your jobs? Is it a political party? Is it gossip or money? What we talk about says a lot about what our heart holds dear. And I don't bring this stuff up to shame us, to say, you're all doing it wrong. Be like me. All I talk about is Jesus. I say this all because we all need to ask ourselves these hard diagnostic questions. Where is our heart today? That's what Christ does when he tries to meet us in his compassion. He wants us to understand that we might be worshiping the wrong thing. And his grace gives us the freedom and the fearlessness to actually address the dark parts of our heart that may be distracted from his goodness. And as he forms us more in Christ's likeness, he will also help us diagnose that, wow, 10 years ago, Christ did not dominate my conversation like it does today. And praise God for that. Worship involves proclamation, but it also involves another thing. It's not just our words. Worship involves hope. Look at verse 8 and verse 22 with me. There's one consistent theme in these verses, and it's that David calls God his refuge. In verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I think when we think about worship, we often think about it as an action that we do that God passively receives. He kind of, God kind of sits in heaven and is just waiting for us to worship him. And as we worship him, he's just kind of sitting there and being like, this is great. I love this. I love all the attention. And yet that is actually not the biblical definition of worship. In worship, God is not passive. Worship is an active obedience that we seek out refuge in him. And as we seek refuge in him, God is actively covering us with his goodness, his grace, his protection, his love. And I say that worship involves hope because ultimately we seek refuge in what we hope in. What we hope for identity, belonging, safety, and security is ultimately what we run to for refuge. And as we consider those diagnostic questions again, those hard questions that Jesus asks our heart, he wants us to ask as we consider our worship, where are you finding refuge? And how's that working out for you? This was the scene in the garden, wasn't it? In Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve in sin were exposed in their nakedness 
and they sought refuge from their shame and their guilt in fig leaves. And God meets them in the garden with his compassion. And he says, how's that working out for you? And by his grace, he covers them with, with a much greater refuge. The animal skins that ultimately show us the love that Christ clothes us in after his blood was spilled. God meets us with these hard questions so that we know and that we can consider how our worship might be disordered. But he also invites us in this psalm to a worship that is properly ordered. And this is what we're going to look at when we look at our second question. So our first question was, what is worship? Our second question is, why should we worship God? Why should we worship God? I do find it comforting that the psalm even allows us to ask this question. David, in verse 3, invites us to worship God. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I love this because there's some expectation in the Bible that we have to be woken up, that we have to be invited to worship God. God is not just expecting out of us that we should all be perfect worshipers. He invites us to worship him, and he also gives us good reason to worship him. We see two good reasons in this psalm of why we should worship God. The first reason is negative. Worship God because of what your idols can't do. An idol is anything that you seek to find your ultimate security, belonging, or identity in apart from God. I mentioned that I'm an Alabama fan, and an idol is kind of like Arkansas football. I hope y'all take this with good, with good humor. Uh, Arkansas football is always full of hype, and yet they fail to deliver. Don't be too offended. It's just a joke. It's on, they're on the up and up. They're coming. But an idol is something that we hope in that ultimately can't deliver. Verse 9 and 10 point this out to us. If you look, David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. But those young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good things. David is comparing young lions to those who are zealous and ambitious to seeking security outside of God in, in idols. And he's inviting us to see, simply see, the vanity of an idol. This is a, an old folk tale that I heard one time from a friend about a story of a woman who loved her pet snake more than anything in the world. It dominated her conversation, but she also sought refuge in her pet snake. Like, it was her everything. And she even loved it so much that she ended up, like, she would sleep with her pet snake, like, in the bed. Can't imagine that. Um, I hate snakes. But, as creepy as that is, she would sleep with the snake, and she got worried eventually that the snake was sick because the snake hadn't eaten for three weeks. And so she took the snake to the veterinarian, and the vet said this, whenever a snake is about to eat a really large prey... They stop eating so that they can fill up some room inside of them. This is a folk tale to show that ultimately what our idols do to us, as we hope in them, as we long in them, as we trust in them, they ultimately measure up who we are so that they can consume us. Just think about it. It's not hard to demonstrate. If you worship your reputation, what people say about you will never be enough to satisfy you. And yet one criticism one mistake will crush 
your self-worth. If you worship your significant other, her or his pursuit of you will never be enough, and yet their failures to you make you question whether you're good enough. For my students, oftentimes, if, if they worship their grades, an A is just measuring up, and a B means utter despair. It works the same for our careers a lot. Our idols promise what we ultimately long for, that good longing that God created us for, to be satisfied in him, to have identity in him, to have belonging and security in him, and yet seeking them apart from God, we ultimately are consumed by the idol we seek them in. And I want to make a caveat on this, because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. It is not bad to care about your reputation. It's not bad to care about your job or your significant other. And yet, what's bad about those is that when we put them out of their proper place, when we put them ultimately saying, I trust my job or my significant other or my reputation to provide what I ultimately long for, which is identity, security, and belonging, that's when it gets disordered. That's when it becomes consuming. That's when our idols lead to despair. The second reason that David calls us to worship God is positive. It's pretty simple. Worship God for what he can do and for what he has done. If you look at all the action verbs, and this may be some good homework for y'all, just look through all the action verbs that are ascribed to God in Psalm 34. The Lord answers, he hears, he delivers, he saves, he sees, he listens, he keeps, he redeems. Why is God worthy of our worship? Because in his pursuing, redeeming, intimate love, he does for us what we wish all of our idols could ultimately do for us. And he does it unprovoked. He does it freely. He does it generously. He does it lavishly. The deepest longings of our soul are ultimately met through God's pursuing and redeeming love in Christ. When God sees us throwing ourselves after idols foolishly, worshiping the creation instead of the creator, what he doesn't do is turn his nose up, up at us and leave us. What he does by his grace is, is kind of like that image in Luke 15 with the prodigal son where the father doesn't just wait for the son to get his act together and come to him. The father runs towards him. He scoops him up even in his smelly garments. Why worship God? Worship God because what he can do, what he has done for us in Christ, he has loved us like that father and the prodigal son. And that's really what I want us to take away from this psalm today. Because often when I think of worship, especially with Presbyterians, and I'm guilty of this myself, worship can seem so boring, seem so emotionless, seem so static. And yes, there is a proper way and a reverent way to worship. But at the same time, static worship, stagnant worship, can also lead us to think that worship's just a duty that we take to God. And yes, it is. He does, or we do owe him all of our affections and all of our praise and all of our songs. But it's not a forced labor that God calls us to. God calls us to worship him out of response to what he has done for us. 
and what he continues to do for us. And because of that, God gives us good reason to have joyful, exciting, emotion-filled even, worship. Because we worship as believers from in a state of grace. We worship not to get grace. We worship from grace as his beloved. And finally, I want us to end practically. What does this look like? What does this look like? How do we worship? So we've looked at what is worship. We've looked at why do we worship God. Now lastly, how do we worship? This is hard for us. If you feel like a lousy worshiper, you are in good company. Just like somebody who, like nobody ever brags about their prayer life. If you brag about your prayer life, you might struggle with self-righteousness. Um, but, you know, nobody, nobody feels like we're actually a good worshiper. Because we know that the only things that we're good at worshiping are those things apart from God. And yet, what we see in this psalm is that God doesn't invite good worshipers to worship him. The prerequisite to worshiping God is not having it all together being really buttoned up, being really put together in your spiritual life. Worship begins when we come to an end to ourself. True worship begins when we come to an end to ourself. Look at verse 18 with me. This is such a comforting verse for somebody who struggles with shame and how they worship um, self-loathing and not thinking that they're really doing enough for God. Look at this verse. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 18 reminds me of the parable in Luke 18 that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Where the Pharisee's in the temple worshiping God and he's worshiping out of self-righteousness. He thinks he's bringing something to God through being so good. And the tax collector in the back stands ashamed, stands in self-loathing, stands pleading for mercy. And what Jesus says is, the tax collector in the back, he's mine. That's true work. That's what I want. That's what I honor. Worship begins when you come to an end to yourself. How is this so? It's so because of the gospel. Hebrews talks about Christ being the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atonement for our sin, much greater than the Old Testament bulls and goats. Christ's blood has sprinkled us, and because of his blood, we are washed clean and able to fully and freely approach the throne of grace, not through our own merit, but through his which means we get to approach God in Christ's blood, in trusting him freely and fully. All that is required is that we realize and recognize and trust that we bring no requirements to the table. Worship begins when we come to an end to ourselves, when we fall fully and freely into Christ's mercy and his blood on the cross. 
what does this look like? How do I apply this to my life? Well, if you'll look at kind of the preface to the psalm, I want to end with this story. The psalm starts off with a preface, as, many of the, as, as quite a few of the psalms do. They place us in a context, in a story. And Psalm 34 says, Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This is a strange story that ended up allowing David to write Psalm 34. This story comes from 1 Samuel 21, where David was running from King Saul. King Saul was the actual king, but David was the anointed and appointed king by God. And as Saul was trying to retain his power, he was pursuing David because he knew David was a threat. And David, in this part of 1 Samuel, is traveling and hiding in many different wildernesses. And he ends up in the city where the king is named Abimelech. And Abimelech realizes this is trouble because if he harbors David, he's harboring a criminal and that makes him liable to Saul, to Saul's judgment. So he's like, what do I do with David? And he's decided that he should kill him. David, knowing this, tries to get out of it. And the way he gets out of it is kind of comical. The Bible can be pretty funny at times. And the way he does this is he acts like a crazy person when he's brought before Abimelech. He acts mentally insane. And Abimelech is so weirded out and so disturbed by David's behavior that he just throws him out. He doesn't kill him. He doesn't want to take the time. He just throws him back out. And out of his foolishness, David found freedom. David found grace. And in response, he wrote this song. And I've been trying to understand and even consider the question, why would David write this psalm of worship after that crazy instance where it seemed like blind luck that his life was preserved? And I think I've landed on this. David was tempted to think that his foolishness found him favor. And yet, as he looked back at God's mercy and God's grace and God's providence in his life, he recognizes that it wasn't his foolishness that God gave him favor for. God gave him favor in spite of his foolishness. That God, regardless of how David would have acted, whether it was strength or insanity, he would have preserved him because he was his child. And it's the same for us. As we consider the mercies of God, we are also invited to consider that God meets us with favor despite our foolishness, despite our foolish attempts to try to follow him, despite our foolish attempts of trying to run from him. God continues to meet us with his grace in Christ. He is more committed to us than we could ever possibly imagine or dream. He has, in Christ, united himself with us. He's not going anywhere. And as David considers God's incredible unbelievable mercy to a fool like him, that's what wakes him up. It's what wakes him up to worship freely and truly. Because worship begins when we come to an end to ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, you invite us to call you Father in Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches the Lord where Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, and he starts off with our Father. And then he shows us in Luke 15 what a father looks like 
A father looks like someone who pursues us, who loves us despite our foolishness. Lord, would you give us a conception of that grace for us? Would you allow us to see how we are prodigal sons that have been loved and cared for by a God who has united himself to us despite ourselves? Lord, would you show us Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of this, your son who took the cross for us while we were enemies, Romans 5 says. And in response to this great love, would you allow us to sing praises, to find hope and rest in you? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.